Are you ready? <laughs> I haven't laughed before. We're so into it. And your eyes are closed. Welcome to Bring on the Books. We are so excited to be in these seats for the fourth recording time thus far. Wow, that's crazy. My name is Allison Winslow. And my name is Bryn Case. If you guys want to see an article about us, it is in Westmont's Horizon Publication, mm-hmm. and it is titled A Different Kind of Conversation. We could put a link in the bio. Yes, we can. And the reason I bring it up is because I think this is exactly what I meant by a different kind of conversation, mm-hmm. is talking about homosexuality, talking about death, talking about pain, talking about the things that aren't conventionally talked about on this campus. Mm -hmm. Even race. Allison, take it away, my girl. Thank you, Bryn. Also, I would just like to do a quick trigger warning for anyone. There is mention of pretty intense torture and violence in in this chapter. So if you haven't read yet and are planning to read, Um, or even listening along, and also trigger warning for sexual assault. If anyone would like to maybe skip ahead on those parts. And the summary that Allison is about to give us, the content summary for this chapter, we do not plan to go into detail at all on these topics. Nothing that you're about to hear is going to be in nearly as much detail as it is in the book. But if you prefer not to hear about it at all, go ahead and skip this episode. And if you don't want to read about it, probably in more depth, then maybe skip chapter four and just listen to this. Yeah. So we find Molly hopping on the back of a lorry truck that is filled with decomposing frozen bodies. The truck drives up to a crematorium where men begin to unload the bodies. And we see Bilal, Kotu, and driver Molly walk up while Officer Rochigado and Kasim are trying to direct the flow of bodies. And this is the clean out of Hotel Leo that Major Raja had um, ordered in the last chapter. So we're seeing his orders being carried out. As they're unloading the bodies, Major Raja shows up and demands that they go faster. So they kind of pick up the pace, and once they're all done, driver driver Molly, Rachigado, and Kasim all drive away with the lorry, and Molly hears Stanley say his name, so he's kind of whisked away to find Dee Dee and Stanley having an argument, a conversation, where Dee Dee tells Stanley that he's quit his job and is going to work with the UN to help identify bodies. And Stanley does not approve of this, But as they're talking, Jackie walks in, saying that she's cracked the code of the numbers and the playing cards that is in the address book. So she goes kind of down the list, and they provide commentary. So I'll start with the Ace of Diamonds she has connected to Johnny Gilhooly. And she also mentions Robert Sudworth, the guy who posed as a journalist but is not really a journalist. And we learn that he works for the Lockheed Systems, which is a company that sells weapons to most South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation Governments. He's a bad guy, it seems. So then she talks about the Queen of Spades, who is whose number goes to Elsa Mathongi. 
and they had kind of have a conversation about how center might be a front for the LTTE or RAW, R-A-W. Next is the Jack of Hearts, and what Jackie says that when she called, they all hung up on her or said that she had the wrong number. And we learned that Mo- from Molly that these are some of his past lovers that he never called back. So he has their numbers, but didn't do anything with them. And then the King of Clubs goes to Major Raja, and when Stanley hears this, he, like, freaks out and says that they don't want to get involved with whatever Molly was doing with Major Raja and to, like, not call back and to really just leave it alone. He, like, gets freaked out about that. So then finally, the Ten of Hearts, it's to their flat number, and Molly describes the pictures and the Ten of Envelopes as pictures that are, quote, the least worth selling and the most worth protecting, end quote. And that's on page 233. I'm so glad you just brought that up because I was sitting here waiting to interject and bring it up. Oh, my gosh. That was so good of you. Yay. Okay, Yay. Good. After this discussion of the pictures and their numbers and all that stuff, we jump to the past when we... S- And we see Molly having lunch with Stanley, Dee Dee, and Jackie. And we hear about Stanley's beliefs about the Tamals versus Sinhalese. And it's very obvious that Molly has different views than him. And Molly calls out Stanley on not voting for the benefit of Sri Lanka, even if it's controversial. Molly and Dee Dee argue about their responsibilities of making Sri Lanka better and how to use their privilege. We get short sections in this little chunk that provide more insight into Molly and Dee Dee's relationship. Molly was constantly lying about what he was doing and that he wasn't sleeping with other people. Dee Dee wanted to come out to his family, but also like didn't and was kind of confused about it. Molly was trying to deal with his PTSD of seeing all these horrific conditions. And Dee Dee was trying to come to terms with his sexuality and love for Molly. It's just all very dysfunctional and seems to have potential to become violent as Dee Dee threatens to that if Molly ever sleeps with anyone else, he will kill him. And it it just doesn't seem like a very healthy relationship, which we've had a sense before, but it's just even more confirmation that while they're in love, they're lying to each other, they're hurting each other, threatening each other. And I know I mentioned this in the last pod, but I still just think it's so, I don't have a better word than admirable of this author to portray his own people, his own situation, essentially, because he grew up in the town during Mm -hmm. the time that these things were happening in this light. I mean, not only is he painting everything in an extremely human way like humanly imperfect way but he's also really just not glazing over anything Mm -hmm. he's like they fought and this is how bad they fought but they still live each other and we all are able to understand that because of how like raw and human and true Mm -hmm. he's writing it Mm -hmm. and I just think that's I think it's incredible I mean I I'm the more we read the more I'm understanding why this book became as big as it did. Mm -hmm. I have to agree. So back in the present, Molly is taken to the minister's car as he is talking to Stanley about the photos. He, meaning the minister, tells him that he can't give them over yet because he's having them looked at and it might not be the best thing to have them available to the public. 
However, we get the sense that he's lying, which we learn later he is. When the minister gets out of the car and one of his men goes and gets a bag out of the back of the car, the bag contains Molly's bones as well as Cena's and some other ghosts. And they all arrive. And Cena looks very different. Later on, we learn that he's also acting different. And I'm wondering if he's gaining more and more power. And we also can't forget that he is trying to amass an army for the Crow Man. He's trying to gain more power and he's trying to gain more followers. He seems a little power hungry. And I don't know if I trust him. I didn't trust him before, but now it's even more like suspicious. And in the same section that you're talking about, he also admits that he's been working with the Mahakali. Yes. And he's like, whatever will get revenge, whatever will get this done. And it's like, oh, okay. So the minister takes these bags of bones and the box of photos and burns them all in the crematorium. So now Molly's body is gone and his photos are gone. So there's really no evidence of him being dead and no evidence of his work. Except for the negatives. Except for the negatives, which we still don't know where they are. Spoiler alert. (laughs) So the stakes just keep rising, honestly. Yeah, yeah. As Molly's watching his body and pictures being burned, Cena begins to try to convince him once again that revenge is the only option, and Molly notices that he doesn't call him sir anymore, which is a very big shift in Cena's behavior towards Molly. Cena argues that they must be the ones to right the wrongs because there is no god or force in the universe that will do it for them. I actually do want to interject. I wrote down this specific quote you're just talking about because Mm -hmm. I felt like it fit really well into our conversation of religion as a theme throughout the text. Mm -hmm. And the exact quote is, the universe does have a self-correcting mechanism, but it's not God or Shiva or karma. It's us. And so Mm -hmm. it really seems like this is vengeance and or revenge masquerading as a sort of playing God moment. Oh, totally. Like, we don't believe God exists, so you know what? We're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, really taking the fate of people's lives and not just, like, the people who had had a part of killing them, but innocent people, civilians, taking their lives into their hands and really acting with only revenge on their minds and they don't care who gets in their way. Molly follows Cena as he gets in the car with driver Molly, Kotu, and Bilal. Cena continues to give speeches about how they must take action and avenge themselves. And I have a quote on page 245 that I highlighted. Cena stands up and delivers his talk. Comrades, keep your blood cool. They tried to kill us, but here we are. We are part of something vast. The force of our injustice will sweep this land. The in-between is the same as down there, no different from the light. There is no force that governs butterflies or Buddhas or what is fair. The universe is anarchy. It is trillions of atoms pushing at each other, trying to clear space. I think this also speaks into the idea of 
there's no higher power and so we must be the ones to be that higher power and I think it's interesting that he calls the in-between the same as down there which is like the kind of regular where the living people are but as we see later in this section Cena and the men cause the car that they're in to crash into a bus stop and the car explodes Kotu and Bilal are burned, but Sina drags driver Molly out of the wreckage and puts out the flames on him. And they drag Kotu and Bilal to the Mahakali to be eaten. That's not to mention the fact that they crashed the car into a bus stop that had an old man and a dog that died. As five people. Five people. Yeah. So I only know four of them. But it was the old man and his dog, and then it was also a mother and her daughter. Mm -hmm. And Molly is looking at these innocent lives that have been taken out of vengeance, and he pauses. And that struck me that he paused to notice that because he's been around death like that his entire life. Yeah. And he just – he doesn't say anything about wanting to grab his camera, nothing like that. Yeah, that's true. He just looks at it. And walks away. Yeah. Cena wants Molly to follow them as they're going to feed the Mahakali. But Molly chooses not to. And I think that is also really big. I feel like this whole time, Cena has really been pushing for Molly to want revenge. And Molly's kind of been dancing on the edge of wanting revenge. And I feel like... This time we finally see him come to realize that Cena and his mission of revenge will, won't lead to anything more than death. More death. And he, this is the first, like, real stand he's taken of not following Cena. I was proud of him in that moment. I was too. I was proud of him. Yeah. Growth even after death. I hope that's possible for me. (laughs) (laughs) So after that whole scene, Molly is taken to the center headquarters where Elsa is telling Kuga that she needs to leave the country. So she's not planning on sticking by her deal with the minister, which is a good thing. However, we see that Rachigado is staking out outside and Major Raja pulls up to tell him that they have eyes on both entrances and to arrest Elsa whenever she leaves. So it seems like Elsa's in a pickle because if she stays up there, she can stay up there forever. But if she leaves, they're going to arrest her, torture her, probably kill her. And she doesn't know that they're down there either. So we finally get to learn more about what Molly was doing for Major Raja during the war, during his time in the army. He would basically go to the war front and photograph the massacres that happened in villages by the tigers, or the army would like set up staged events that made it look like the tigers were being killed, and then he would take pictures of them. Is that correct? What I got from it was that these were war crimes and he was killing people he wasn't necessarily supposed to be killing and then he was dressing them up major raja yes okay. major raja and then he was dressing them up as 
the opposing side mm-hmm. and having him photograph that like oh I killed these people that I was supposed to be killing look they're wearing uniforms yeah. but they're not people that he was supposed to kill okay yes and then we also learned that the army was massacring villages too but they didn't photograph those because it's bad propaganda bad publicity we're very much exposed to the corruption of war times mm-hmm. yeah Molly's called into Major Raja's office and is dismissed because he would have sex with soldiers, which was prohibited. After their meeting, Major Raja had Molly follow him, and as they were driving, he began asking questions about how Molly took Robert to the village. He kept asking which side Molly was on and bringing up his sexuality, accusing him of molesting soldiers and of having HIV. All very negative, horrible things he was saying to him. And all during this time, he's also kind of... Hitting on him. Hitting on him, like making advances physically on him. It becomes clear to us that he does want sexual affection from Molly, Mm -hmm. but he is too insecure in his masculinity to allow himself so he's in a constant battle in this chapter with himself where he's aggressive with wally and then he's grabbing him and then he's aggressive with him and then he wants him yeah it's a back and forth yeah well said thank you yeah they arrive at the palace that seems to have been used for torture and killing. They pass rows of rooms where people are in different levels of torture and they're held there and Major Raja tells Molly that he's going to let him go, which I believe he means fire him, but also torture and kill him before Molly has the chance to embarrass him. Molly tries to use sex as a way to get out because this whole time Major Raja has been molesting him, like we talked about, and taunting him about his sexuality. However, this doesn't work as Major Raja starts to beat him before letting him go. Molly leaves the palace, and what I got from that was that he actually kind of was let go for his sexual advances on Major Raja. If you read, you'll see that we have a picture of what's happening in multiple different rooms. Mm-hmm. So they really saturate this idea of multiple different tortures, and we really are led to believe that Major Raja is scaring the crap out of Molly. Yeah, I think by the end I took it more of like a threatening that if Molly tried to say anything, tried to do anything, this is what would happen to him. When we're back in the present, Molly goes to the palace where it seems like he didn't stay when he was alive. When he goes back, ghost Molly meets a priest on the roof and they start talking about religion and God's power over evil. And as they're discussing, Molly realizes that this priest is shifting before his eyes. As Molly begins to get sucked into the conversation and the despair he feels from that, he realizes that the priest is actually the Mahakali. He seems almost hypnotized as it gets closer and closer. And the chapter ends with the Mahakali having Molly in its grasp. 
and the way that the Mahakali is portrayed in that last little bit of the chapter is very interesting because Molly says he no longer is able to tell if it's a man or a woman. Yeah. And then when it's holding him, he feels the embrace of all of the different people that the Mahakali mm-hmm. has taken. He said it's neither, I think he said it's neither a he or a she, it's cacophony. That's exactly, that yeah. was exactly what he said. Yeah. Oh, wow. Good memory, Allison. I feel like that whole scene was written beautifully. You felt Molly's despair and you could feel him just like kind of giving up. And it was also striking to me that this conversation happens on the roof of the palace, right? Mm -hmm. And the palace is what we just spoke about, this mega torture chamber with a bunch of different smaller chambers in it. And during this conversation that the Mahakali is having with Molly, he's like sucking in the terror that's like flying out of the windows of these people that are being tortured. And so I really just got the sense in this part of the chapter that Molly was just feeling the weight Mm -hmm. of everything below him, Mm -hmm. the thing sitting in front of him, everything above him. It was just all totally coming down on him and I was like wow he this is the closest we've this is the most deflated we've ever seen Molly yeah so that's how the chapter ends Bryn would you like to discuss themes that we saw throughout this chapter I know that you said there was a lot and I totally agree well before I get into themes I just briefly wanted to mention some character development on the part of driver Molly. When we began the pod for today, you were talking about how in the beginning scene of the chapter, they're all throwing bodies into cars and they're all just kind of being ordered around and it's like cleanup, but they have no regard for the fact that the bodies were humans and they're just doing their day to day. And driver Molly becomes a person in this moment yeah. because he, on page 228, he basically speaks out and says that not all the people that are killed were terrorists or thugs and that they were young and he doesn't agree with what they're doing anymore, so much so that he's put in for a transfer. And he says this directly to Detective Kasim, who he previously described on the page before to be this terrible man that could kill anyone do anything he wants and he's looking at him and he's like yeah none of this is right like I cannot stomach any of this anymore Mm. and I think that previous to this driver Molly has I mean driver is literally in his name yeah he's He's just been complicit and like just like a taxi driver yeah not even really a character and I think this is the first time where we see any personality or humanity to him I Totally agree. And I also think it's interesting throughout the chapter, we see that ghosts are always around him, whispering into his ear. And I get the sense that a lot of his thoughts are not his own, though, even though it's like he's come into his own personality. And we even see Cena whisper into his ear, and that's what causes the car to crash. Diving into themes. (laughs) Diving on in. I would first like to antiquate us with the cultural context of this chapter, which I actually think is really, really important. 
on the first page of this chapter, page 225, the 1983 massacre is mentioned as having essentially just happened. And reading it, I was like, I know nothing about the 1983 massacre in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't tell us, which I think is really smart on his part because he's requiring people to actually do research on the country he's from. Anyways, I looked up the 1983 massacre and it's also called Black July which started with a deadly ambush on July 23rd, 1983, which caused the death of 13 Sri Lankan army soldiers by the LTTE. That's not the craziest part. Okay. This then turned into a violent riot, which escalated into mass violence with significant public participation. The night after the 23rd, so the 24th, an anti-Tamil riot started, multiple of them, in the capital city of Colombo and then spread to other parts of the country. Wow. So where they are in this entire book is the epicenter of this happening. Mm -hmm. Over seven days, mainly Silanese mobs attacked, burned, looted, and killed Tamil citizens— Estimates of the death toll range from 400 to 3,000, which that's That's, a lot of uncertainty there. That's a huge gap. A huge gap. And 150,000 people became homeless. I know you're going to ask why. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because around 8,000 homes and 5,000 Shops were destroyed. Wow. The economic cost of the riots was estimated to be $300 million. That's insane. That is where we are right now in history. Yeah. So the torture that you're seeing, the death that you're seeing. Seven years ago. Happened seven years ago. Still very fresh. Still very fresh, especially for having continued over a long span of time. Yeah. Wow. The cultural context in this chapter, I felt like also overlapped with some religious aspects. On page 259, we get an idea of the attitude towards Americans. Quote, besides, only Americans get Pulitzers. The Americans, whose CIA sponsored the Indonesian massacre, who have a naval base south of the Maldives and have sent teams of interrogation trainers to this so-called palace in this so-called paradise. That's not flattering. Not (laughs) at all. Yeah, throughout this whole chapter, there was a lot about how American and Western countries are secretly behind a lot of the uh, violence and anarchy and instability of a lot of other countries. Or at least contribute to it without having any idea what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, it kind of felt like a shot to the heart. And I think Mm. the reason that it did is because I was like, yeah, I kind of know this is true. Mm Mm-hmm. 
On page 243, Cena says, even American slaves knelt before a god that looked away from lynchings. Oof. That hurt me. Yeah. I think that was a brutal flashlight to the face. Mm-hmm. Our last piece of religious commentary that I felt was worth bringing up in the pod was when the Mahakali says that maybe God is incompetent. He is willing to prevent evil. He is able to prevent it, but he's just badly organized. He's always late and cannot prioritize. And this was during his talk with Molly on the roof Mm -hmm. of the palace. And he says this statement to just put it in further context. He says it to point out that no one's ever thought of this. No one's ever thought that God could maybe just be sloppy. Mm -hmm. But what really struck me about this quote and why I wanted to bring it into this space was because of he's always late and cannot prioritize. So now we're back to the space of assuming that a God does exist Mm -hmm. and he is just not all-encompassing and almighty. But also, if God can't prioritize, that's because he's focused on something. Then what do they believe God is focused on? Mm -hmm. What he can't tear himself away from to prioritize other people. That's interesting. That made me kind of wonder. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity about whether God exists, if he does... Is he incompetent? Is he there? There. It's interesting that even the Mahakali is wrestling with this, it seems, because it's a higher being, it seems like. It seems like it's an entity that houses souls. It's not even a person, it seems to me. No, it's like a demon beast thing. So it's really interesting that even the Mahakali is having these questions and posing these answers to people. Moving on to the next best thing. Questions. Standby questions. (laughs) Please tell us what you want to bring to light as a question. So in the last episode, we talked about the quote that discussed stories as things we create so we don't get scared. And on page 235, Molly says, quote, You think of the lottery of birth and how everything else is mythology. Stories, the ego tells itself to justify fortune or explain away injustice. And this comes after, I believe he's having a conversation with Stanley about the difference between Sinhalese and Tamils and a lot of racial tension. And yeah, that's just some context for the quote. But... What do you make of him saying that everything else is just mythology, stories the ego tells itself to justify fortune or explain away injustice? I don't want to bring, like, personal testimony into it, but that's actually – I don't have an answer for that because that is something I feel like I've definitely struggled in in my own, like, religious ideals is do we make up this idea of God to feel comforted for how hard things are sometimes and I feel like that's a really real 
concept to battle with. Mm-hmm. I feel like no matter what you believe, if you believe in nothing, it. I think that this is a really interesting piece that you brought up, and I think that I have no answers. And that's okay. Just thoughts. Yeah. And I think that's another reason this book is so good. It's so rich, you guys. Like, uh, I wish we could have, like, a two-hour-long podcast to talk about everything because there's so much there. I commend your thoughts. I I totally agree. I think Do that... you have anything that could further the conversation? I think it's interesting that he says you have to justify fortune. Mm. I mean, I feel like it's easier, not easier, but people are tend to explain away injustice. But I feel like you don't really need a reason for fortune to be good. And yet he says that you have to justify it. And I guess that's like, oh, I didn't work for this or I didn't do anything for this. And so why do I have it? You have to come up with a reason. But I don't know. I just I thought this quote was so I thought it encapsulated his personal belief with the whole gambling aspect, how he views stories. It's just so interesting because, I mean, I'm an English major and a communication studies major. So stories are like the thing. And this view of why we tell stories is so fascinating and I think really like pokes at me. It like okay. pokes, pokes my little brain. Okay. And says, what does that mean? Yeah, think about yeah, that. Think, think about, that, think about that a little bit. And you have been thinking about this. Yeah. For like the entire book. Literally. Bryn, I would love for you to ask me your standby question or your your question that you brought to the table. Mine's a little more material. Okay. That's good. At the end of the last chapter, mm-hmm. in literally the last paragraph, we were introduced to something called the mask, and we didn't know what it was. In this chapter, there's an entire section on the mask, and we have insight to the mask, but not enough. When they are in the palace seeing the different rooms of people being tortured, there is a man leaning over a chair where he's doing something to another man that's strapped to a chair. And that man is called the mask, mm-hmm. and he's wearing a mask. And in that section, it says that guests of the palace, quote unquote, meet him first on page 258. So my question is kind of doubled. What do you think the mask, as it is labeled as a person, does? So Mm -hmm. what do you think that person is doing to people? And also, why do you think guests of the palace would meet him first? Mm. I think, good question. Because we really do just meet him, like, once. Once. Brief mention. But that whole section is the mask. So it's really interesting. I think that he tortures people terribly I think he interrogates people as he's torturing them and I feel like guests would meet him first so he could break them probably and I think they take him them to him so he can try and get as much information from them at the very beginning I just I think that he's like the big bad at the palace like he I feel like it's major Raja and then there's like the mask who's like does the things that he 
tells him to do. Like, like the nitty gritty, the dirty yeah, work. Yeah, he does the dirty work and he wears a mask to keep his identity a secret and to make him seem more spooky. Wow. Yeah, I have a whole thing. That's in my head. really I that was completely different from my job. <gasps> but I'm really? Like really I'm Wait, really glad. Well, I wanna hear what you have to I say. I was thinking and I've watched a lot of criminal minds, so like this is definitely influencing my train of thought here. <laughs> it's a little outlandish. But I was thinking First thing I thought of with a mask is hiding your identity, which is what you said, mm-hmm. or needing a mask to breathe when oh. there's other things happening. My theory is they're, he's breaking people down with chemicals or drugs. Oh. Yeah. He's like inducing them in a state where they're more susceptible to torture, to letting out the truth. Like maybe he's like using a truth gas, yeah, truth serum. Not even yeah, or just like, um, or even just, I don't know. I'm gonna gas you and put you in this like confused state, and then I'm gonna try oh, to pull things out of you as they're like kind of hypnotized. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Or um, <laughs> you're like, no. Well, uh, uh, I just don't know. Yeah. Only real theory is that the mask is used so that the man behind the mask isn't exposed to mm. chemicals okay. or poisons or oh. other materials. See, for I didn't. I didn't take the mask as a literal like gas mask. I took it as like identity, like, mask. an identity mask, maybe to make it more scary. Not any for real purpose, you know, function wise. But that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Because I was like, why is only one person wearing a mask? Yeah, that's why true. Why isn't everyone else wearing a mask? Like, why is this I just, person? I just feel like he's the big bad of the whole thing. I just had a moment. I could see it in your eyes. What happened? What if he's wearing a mask to conceal his identity because we, as the readers, are going to be shocked about who it is? Oh. You get what I'm saying? Yes. Like, what if it's Didi? Like, yeah, and then what if, a sudden, what if all of a sudden we get to a chapter and it's like, oh, the mask took off the mask, and guess who it is? It's, <gasps> Standby questions. Okay. Who do you think murdered Molly based on what we know thus far? Oh, gosh. I feel like Major Raja knew that Molly had seen him and Robert and the general talking and he got spooked and I feel like he but the general also could have sent someone after him mm-hmm. and Robert mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna stick with Major Raja though I feel like he sent someone after him that's what I was gonna say okay I feel like this chapter didn't it provided me with such rich context about race and homosexuality and culture and character development that I didn't really gather any new insights on who I thought killed Molly. The only insight that we get really is that Major Raja knows that he took Robert to the thing and he was there. I don't think he knows at that moment that he had pictures of the meeting, but he knows that he was there. Agreed. Could not agree more. 
Okay, Bryn, what's a quote or a moment that's stuck with you that you would like to bring to our attention? Well, I apologize in advance because it's a little hefty, but mm. there is an exchange in the bottom two paragraphs on page 234 that I really wanted to bring to light. It is a quote that compares the Sinhalese to the issues of racial undertones in America. And I just was, I read this, I went into the opposite room and read it to my roommate. Then I went into the opposite room and read it to my other roommate. Mm. And we were all kind of shook. Mm -hmm. So I would like to read it. Yeah. Jackie asked why the Sinhalese are so insecure and Stanley replied that it is the same reason whites in America fear the Negro they once enslaved. And Dee does the dolphin for two lengths followed by a brushstroke. But race isn't fact, it's fiction, said Jackie. It's man-made shit. Who can tell a Sinhalese and a Tamil apart? That's not true, said Stanley. It is a fact that Negroes run faster, that Chinese work harder, that Europeans invent things. Obviously, the end of that quote is stereotype after stereotype after stereotype. 100%, yeah. But I think this is really interesting because it's a comparison of generations, it sort of seems. It seems like Stanley, who is older than Jackie, is saying race matters, I'm stuck in the era of, you know, all these racial tensions. And Jackie's like, race isn't even like a thing anymore. Like why, why are we, to an extent, why are we talking about this? Mm -hmm. it's, it's an idea, it's a concept we've created as humanity. And Stanley says, that's not true. Mm -hmm. And then goes on to say these stereotypes. And I think that this geniusly articulates. I, I feel like it's cultures, sorry to interject. I feel like culture is both at the same time. At once it's saying race is a social construct, it's fictional. And then at the same time, it's also upholding these stereotypes that aren't true. It, it's a fickle thing. It like goes back and forth between to between both of these ideas. And and it's generational totally of like and I think culture and society has in some ways plays to both of these ideas at the same time. Yes, that's exactly what you just said is exactly what I was trying to get out. Mm -hmm. Like the the ability for both of these ideas to exist and mm -hmm. that being like the root of some major issues. I also think that it's interesting just in general that Jackie asking why the Sinhalese are so insecure that Stanley thought to immediately relate that to whites and quote unquote the Negro in mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. Like that just seems like a it makes me wonder if the Sinhalese and the Tamils, mm -hmm. if that is at all a similar situation to racial 
issues and prejudices going on over here. So I thought that that was just such an alive moment in this chapter. And I think this is the moment from this chapter that I will think about Mm -hmm. until we do our next podcast. I have kind of two. I have one that I just really like the sentence and I want to read it. But then I have another one that's like, also, I like the sentence, but it's also like I have thoughts about it. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so my first one that is just kind of like I like the sentence is on 227. And it says, quote, You look up at the giant chimney spewing black smog towards the heavens where the stars look away and the gods refuse to hear, end quote. I just think that's, I mean, it's really sad because it's like the burning bodies, but it's also a very beautiful quote of like the stars looking away and the gods refusing to hear. It's like tragically beautiful. It's a very alive image. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow, that is beautiful. And it also took it, like, cosmically with the stars and, like... My next one is on 262, and this is during the last conversation with the Mahakali and Molly. And it says, quote, That hollowness and that loathing were not entirely unpleasant. Despair begins as a snack that you nibble on when bored and then becomes a meal that you have thrice a day. And... As I was reading that, I was like, whoa, I have more thoughts than that. But I think that's, like, such a crazy insight of how you can just become wrapped up in despair and sorrow and the negative emotions. And I think it's true. Sometimes it's, like, cathartic to feel those feelings and to wallow in them. But... Molly points out that when you do that, it can be too far and you can kind of just fall into it. <gasps> you literally have it. Oh my gosh. Listeners, Bryn just showed me she has it highlighted and says true. I literally highlighted it when I was reading. We do not read together, by the way. No, we don't. I had it highlighted and wrote true with an exclamation mark next to it. Yeah. As you're reading that, you feel like when you're reading it you'll see you feel the despair that molly's feeling and you feel his emotions of being just so sad and broken and in the middle of it he talks about how it's not unpleasant that it can feel good to have these emotions and to just let you fester on them but that before you know it that's all you're feeling that's all you're you're eating is and like living off of is that despair and man it was just a real wake-up call and like so true I agree completely with you that's exactly what I felt in that moment I was like oh yeah remember that one time I listened to that sad song and then I marinated in it for a day and then um it completely overtook me and Mm -hmm. before I knew it I was crying every day about that one emotion that one song that one memory and so I think that again I think it's so on the nose Mm -hmm. that we're just stunned stunned yeah Karen Talaka you done it again you have done it again done it again Well, guys, that's the end of the fourth moon. 
Molly only has three more moons. And yeah, we'll see what Molly does with his fifth day. I'm not going to give any spoilers because I don't know any spoilers. But in the last two days, both my aunt and my grandma have independently texted me telling me that if we think we're excited now, they got so excited they finished the book before us. I'm so excited. There's so much information we need. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. As always, we hope you have a lovely rest of your day, night, morning, evening. We will see you soon. And until then, we will be editing audio. Woohoo! Woo Yay! Bye, guys. Bye.